The Tom Woods Show, episode 1137. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, like many of us, there's a good chance you were probably a victim of educational malpractice. Well, undo all that over at libertyclassroom.com, where we teach you the history and economics you didn't get in school. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here. Bill Anderson joins us today. Professor Bill Anderson teaches economics at Frostburg State University, and I wanted to talk to him about a paper he delivered not long ago at the Austrian Economics Research Conference. We're going to get into that in a minute. It has to do with absolute immunity for prosecutors and what this means for the American legal system and the way this biases the system in a certain direction. The incentives that are created by this particular policy tend to slant the operation of the wheels of justice, let's say, in a particular way, not favorable toward the accused. Let's put it that way. Bill has, in addition to his work in economics, been a an outstanding journalist in particular on the Duke lacrosse case from a number of years ago, and I'll want to start off by asking him about that. But this is the first time I've talked to Bill on the show, and I'm just delighted. Bill, welcome. Good to be here. Before we get into the paper that you gave at the conference, let's talk about something that you were uh, very much involved in as a writer and a journalist and an observer, and that is the Duke lacrosse case. Some of my listeners were probably just growing up during those years, but we're talking 2006 to 2007, and that was a case where people like you and my old uh, – the TA I had as an undergraduate, uh, Casey Johnson and some others were sure that something was fishy about that case, and I read what people were writing. I didn't know what to think. But as I look back on it now, good grief, this was – to say this was a miscarriage of justice is a preposterous understatement. So I'd like to t- talk about this because this is a case where the prosecutor himself was actually punished. And the point of your paper that we're going to talk about in a few minutes is that it's exceptionally rare yes. for that to actually happen. So something grossly unjust must have happened in this case. What was that? Well, I think that what happened was that uh, the prosecutor, Michael Nifong, really did everything he could to make this case go national, and he sought out a lot of publicity. He gave more than 70 interviews, which is something prosecutors really aren't supposed to do. He made a number of, of inferences about guilt. He uh he just basically shot off his mouth a lot. And here was the problem, that he had put himself so far out in front and and had had really uh, almost had, – had really encouraged the rest of the news media and all of the uh, usual suspects in the left-wing establishment to go ahead and jump off the cliff with him. And at the time, you know, they were saying, well, hey, a prosecutor is is saying all this stuff, so it has to be true. Well, well let's it's, remind people, what is the all this stuff that was being said about whom? Okay, what, what the case itself involved an accusation by a black stripper that uh, three lacrosse players from Duke University had raped her at a party. And so what what they did, and without going into a lot of detail in the case, that the accusations themselves uh, just took off. And uh, you had the uh, Raleigh News and Observer 
uh, writing a number of articles at the beginning, absolutely inferring guilt. And uh, they even the paper even took part in creating a wanted poster for the players, having all of the white players, uh, their photos on a single sheet and, uh, you know, and calling for uh, for people to come forward and things like that. And so, in other words, that uh, there were no restraints about that, that you're supposed to have about uh saying whether or not this actually happened. And what occurred was that the evidence almost immediately was showing up as being, you know, that there was no rape, number one, that the woman had no DNA, that we were supposed to, a DNA on her. We were supposed to believe the three young men, drunk young men, for 30 minutes would beat the woman, rape her, ejaculate in her mouth, in her uh, vagina, uh, on her body, that they would uh, uh, all be naked and rolling all over her and all over this bathroom, and yet not leave one speck of DNA on her anywhere, and that all of these things that she alleged simply could not have happened. I mean, the and and it was pretty good forensic science, to be honest, because a lot of times forensic science is not very good. But in this particular case, uh, they really did everything they could to try to preserve things as well as possible. And But what happened was because of the statements of the uh, prosecutor especially and the uh, Raleigh News and Observer, they had a young left-wing uh, uh, journalist named uh, Samia Kahana, who subsequently lost her job at that paper. But... Uh, and then the uh, they had an editor who later went out to the Sacramento Bee to try to turn it around, and she got fired out there too. But um, the but in other words, what happened was that there were no nobody would restrain themselves, and I think that a lot of people on the left are saying, "Aha, we finally have the case that we need," and so they just. You know, it's the old thing of jumping on the horse and riding off in all directions. And as a result, the, the prosecutor, uh, he had also personal and financial interest in this because uh, he wanted to get elected and serve four more years so he could get an extra $15,000 on his pension. And it just never occurred to him, I think, that this was going to blow up in his face. And, and it did. And so the North Carolina State Bar was left with a real problem because here was somebody who had absolutely flaunted the rules of, you know, that, of conduct uh, that uh, every state bar every, every in the country, not in, and also including the federal bar, has actually very strict rules as to what prosecutors can and cannot do. And here was Michael Nifong just breaking them left and right. And then it turned out later he was hiding evidence. He was, and he had conspired to do that. Uh, he had conspired with a, uh, with a private uh, DNA, a firm that, that does DNA analysis. And so they had, you know, conspired to withhold information. So yes, they, you know, that uh, it was outright lying uh, to a judge, to uh, the public and all. And even with all that, it took the New York Times more than a year to finally admit, hmm, maybe all this stuff really isn't true after all. 
I mean, this was this was the New York Times that gave us the uh, denial of the Ukrainian famine. I mean, this was in all its glory. Well, Bill, what was it about the case that made you think something's fishy here? I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of cases you read about in the paper and you just go on to the next page. What was it that made you say this can't be right? Well, what made me think about that was first that the whole issue of DNA and also thinking, wait a second, what is the evidence? You know, I was an athlete in college, uh, a pretty good one back about 45 years ago. Uh, I ran track at the University of Tennessee, and I'm fully aware of things that athletes are capable of doing. And yes, that there is sometimes that sense of privilege and god-awful you know, behavior that, that we see. And so that got me interested at first, but it very, but I was already writing about prosecutorial misconduct. And I think I was probably loaded for bear, as they might say. But in that particular situation, it was obvious, uh oh, we have a real problem because in you know, I knew that that in that situation, DNA would have to play a role. It would have to it, that uh, um, if everything that was being alleged that happened, you know, including by the way that these guys had not cleaned up the bathroom after this infamous party where all of this stuff supposedly took place, uh, and also. I'll be honest, anytime the New York Times really jumps on something like this, you can usually figure that they're going to be wrong. And so uh, it uh, and in the end, you know, was, to be honest, it was kind of like shooting fish in a barrel. It was not hard to, at all. But yet what really struck me was the refusal of a lot of people to believe the obvious. They just so wanted to believe this story to be true, that they were willing to do anything, I mean, anything to keep it going. And that's the sort of thing that if you've known me for many years, Tom, and you know, that's the sort of thing that kind of makes me mad. And when I get mad, I write about it. Well, what you did, you and the others, uh, was just so important. Did you at any time get to know the family members of the accused? Oh, yeah. I, I did uh, the uh, uh, and made some interesting contacts over the years. You're kind of uh, without you know going in a lot of detail, but yeah, I I did. And um, did they thank you? Yeah, I'll, I'll t you know it was it was interesting. I remember uh, meeting Reed Seligman's father at a uh, party, and he said to me, "Boy, wait till Kathy, his wife, here said I got to meet Bill Anderson." So he was kind of excited about that, uh, and. And what nobody really just said directly to thanks. I think Casey Johnson got more of that because um, Casey was the real star in this. I was uh, I always considered myself sort of, you know, on the periphery. There were people that I mean, I you know, I I was able to sort of make a reputation for myself there, and also in the Tanya Craft case a few years later in Northwest Georgia. And on that one, I actually got written up on in the blogs because I, I took the lead in that. I did a lot what KC did. But, you know, they were I think the families were nice. And and uh, certainly some some of the other families I got to be friends with. And they were very, they were very good to us. Uh, and I've stayed at some people's houses uh, on trips and things like that. So 
I would, you know, I, I certainly think that the people were, were grateful enough, kind enough. I wasn't looking for that and whatnot, but, but, uh, I thought that the people that I got to know, including the, uh, the accused families, I thought they were pretty good people, to be honest. I really, really did like them. Let's talk about this paper then that you gave at the uh, Austrian Economics Research Conference recently. The title of it is Protected Lying, How the Legal Doctrine of Absolute Immunity Has Created a Lemons Problem in American Criminal Courts. Uh, let's lay out what exactly absolute immunity for prosecutors is. Well, what absolute immunity says that as long as a prosecutor is engaged in the duties that are expected of a prosecutor, that that prosecutor, no matter what, no matter how outrageous the action, may not be sued by uh, a person that he or she has harmed. All right. For example, let's say that Michael Nifong, now, by the way, he was somewhat vulnerable because of a, uh, because he also became an investigator as opposed to just a prosecutor. But even then, uh, I think he was pretty well protected by the, the courts. The courts really, um, they protected the city of Durham. They protected, uh, they did not protect Duke University. Uh, the players, uh, William Cohan, and that horrible book he wrote, notwithstanding, uh, they settled f with each of them for, I think, a little under $7 million apiece, the three people. But the courts really, really protected uh, Nifong to bleed, you know, in, in this particular thing. It goes back to a 1976 case, Imbler versus Pachman in which the Supreme Court ruled that uh, as long as prosecutors are doing their prosecutorial duties, that they can't, that you, if you, uh, the person being prosecuted, even, in the, even if they harmed you, even if they lied, even if they broke the law, it doesn't matter because you cannot sue them. And so what you have to do is depend upon the state which is, of course, all the good friends and colleagues of the prosecutor to induce punishment. And that's why, and by the way, that's why it never, it rarely ever happens. The extraordinary thing about the Nifong case was that anything happened at all. Yeah, that's what, that was part of my excuse to be able to bring up that case, because you did briefly mention it in the paper as being one of the very few counterexamples to the phenomenon that you're describing. Yeah. So let's say it turns out that uh, there's some prosecutor who either did not bring forth – well, let's talk about the, the Brady thing. Yeah. The prosecutor is required to bring forth exculpatory evidence, but why would it be the prosecutor's obligation to do that? Because it's the prosecutor that is uh, generally gets the case file, and then, and uh, it's the prosecutor who then actually is a conduit of information, or at least a, the information that the police will have. That that um, you know, if if the police don't give up something to the defense attorney, but they give it up to the prosecutor, then the prosecutor has to is, is legally required to to get that information to the defense. Uh, and also, uh, you have to understand that most people, 
in criminal cases, you know, you, you hire a lawyer uh, and and that's very, very expensive. Most of us do not have a few hundred thousand dollars of spare change. OK, the Duke case, uh, it cost the defense cost about five million dollars and that didn't go to trial. Tanya Kraft in Northwest Georgia, she spent over a million dollars that they had through family inheritance. That did not even cover all of the attorney's uh, and research costs. And so you can, whereas the uh, the prosecutors, they don't have to worry about that. Uh, and in fact, uh, um, the less research they do, the better. <laughs> and so um, it, it, I know it sounds strange, but but it's the prosecutor that has most of the information. Uh, and the reason that I talk about the lemons problem is that it goes back to a 1970 paper by George Akerlof. And now Akerlof, you know, economically speaking, there were some difficulties with it. In fact, Tom DiLorenzo really tore apart some of the uh, concepts in that paper. But there were some aspects of the paper, I think, that were applicable to this. And that is that if I'm selling something to you and I know that something is wrong with it uh, and you don't know that, uh, then you know, I have more information than you do. If you knew that, you would demand a lower price, you see. And so, um, and so it, it would be to my advantage uh, withholding it. Although, here's the thing that, and, and you know, that once I sold you the car, if the car broke down, there are remedies that you would have in order to be able to uh, get some, at least some measure of wholeness in this. Whereas with the courts, here's the problem, Tom. With the courts, once they get a conviction, they hold on to them very, very tightly. It is extremely difficult. Uh, and so it's extremely difficult to get a verdict overturned, no matter how bad the misconduct. So therefore, prosecutors have the incentive to hold, withhold information. I mean, they're absolutely incentivized to do so. So that's the key. It seems to be so often the case that critiques of the market hold, you know, 50 times more when you apply them to the state itself. Because when, oh, it, yes. when it comes to asymmetric information, which is what Eckerloff is talking about in that paper, yeah. well, what better example of asymmetric information could you have than a prosecutor who won't hand over exculpatory evidence and who – then is is more or less protected by absolute immunity from the possibility that the verdict could be overturned. Yes, Tom. What happens in this is that that people prosecutors are incentivized for convictions. They uh, that that's how you get uh, not only promotion uh, and raises within that organization, but it's how you also make a name for yourself. Some of these guys end up going to high-priced uh, law firms afterwards. Uh, let me give you an example uh, that uh, a lot of people don't know about, and that was the Enron case. And you had uh, the lead prosecutor in that, lead federal prosecutor, and right now I can't think of his name, but but he was actually sleeping with the uh, with uh, a journalist from uh, then Fortune magazine and also CNBC, who was also writing 
about the case, and she put forth a lot of propaganda about it. And uh, and afterwards, they got married. Now they deny that they had even had any contact beforehand, which was total nonsense, an absolute lie. But here was the thing that the prosecutor afterwards. Uh, got a job with a high-powered Chicago law firm, and she went on with Vanity Fair. So it really, it was something that financially, uh, the conviction was, I mean, it it was a, meant millions of dollars to this wonderful couple. Uh, And uh, it's so on. And so that you are financially uh, and reputationally incentivized for convictions in that position. So that's the positive set of incentives. However, on the negative side, here is the here is the beauty of it. Okay, I say you know beauty in quotation marks that there is no downside. If you're caught lying, it's well, you know, no harm, no foul or uh well, gee, uh, you shouldn't do that. Uh, hold your hand out so we can tap it and uh, and so on. And so, you know, that the chances of actually, you know, being punished, even if you're caught, and that's the thing, even if you are caught, the chances that you are going to be punished are almost zero, which gives you a, a true perverse set of incentives. So, yes, it's absolutely the state, even though the markets, markets don't have these kinds of incentives, Tom. They just don't. That there's always, almost, almost always something that you can do to pursue at least some form of wholeness. We're in the, in, um, the courts, especially in, st- you know, in government run courts. It is nearly impossible. And, you know, you'll see these stories, so-and-so let out of prison after 20 years for a crime that he didn't commit. And you have to ask yourself, well, how was it that he got there in the first place if he didn't commit the crime? And are, you know, are police investigators that bad? Are prosecutors simply just that ignorant? Um, no, it's that a lot of times people know that they're lying, but it doesn't matter because the state encourages. More with Bill Anderson in just a moment after we thank our sponsor. Folks, if you were walking down the street and saw 99 cents on the ground, chances are you might not even bother to bend over and pick it up. You'd say to yourself, my self-respect is worth more to me than 99 cents. Well, you know what else is worth way more than 99 cents? How about two months worth of access at Skillshare? where you can get access to over 20,000 classes that can give you a leg up in your career or in that side hustle you're trying to start. I'm just glancing at the homepage right now, and I see courses on Mastering Illustrator, Fundamentals of DSLR Photography, How to Start as a Freelancer, Ink Drawing Techniques, How to Mix Music. Imagine 20,000 of these for two months for just 99 cents? Well, as a listener of The Tom Woods Show, that is precisely what you get. When I emphasize on the show that nobody has any excuse for complaining about the economy, well, Skillshare is the illustration of what I'm talking about. And you get two months access to all 20,000 classes for just 99 cents. Head over there to Skillshare.com Woods right now. That's Skillshare.com Woods. I want to just read a little passage from your paper because here's another angle on the whole question. Mm. Uh, You cite a 2014 study that finds that 
something that we probably knew already, that most criminal cases result in pleas as opposed to going to trial, and that often results in innocent people pleading guilty to something simply because they lack the resources to take charges to trial or do not have confidence that the system will work for them, and they will receive harsher sentences than had they just pleaded guilty. The plea system is almost completely free of judicial or legislative oversight and regulation, which makes things even more hazardous for defendants given that prosecutors receive no sanctions for overcharging or coercing guilty pleas from innocent persons. Now, this went on. If we had a private legal system, not a government monopoly system, but a private legal system, we would never hear the end of the outrage about this. But instead, I have to dig around in a Bill Anderson paper to find out about it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That, uh, uh, and in fact, in uh, a, a, a private in a, a private system would obviously work a lot differently. It would work more like a civil system. Murray Rothbard laid out a number of ideas on that and others have too but you're absolutely right that uh for whatever reason that uh these folks are always held up as being exemplary prosecutors well they could be making you know big bucks as private attorneys but instead they choose to serve the public as prosecutors and that's frankly a bunch of nonsense you know a lot of them really you know that being prosecutors they if they want to be um criminal defense attorneys you know, you look at the the prosecutor's office is sort of serving on the farm team. You know that uh, it's your 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 um, uh, doing some of the you know, laying some of the groundwork. It's like, for example, on Wall Street, you have a number of executives on Wall Street who have also been in the Securities and Exchange Commission, and serving the SEC actually is considered a plus. When you when you serve and and you know when you work then for later for some of these financial firms and so there's this revolving door that you're going to to find and in fact uh, in a market system that um, it's just simply yeah market system ha- generally has ways to get around this uh, that uh, uh, so if you want to talk about a government failure a huge failure this is it but it's a failure because of uh, that the people who are harmed really have no way of getting justice they have they really um you know you'll you'll see people being compensated sometimes even you know awarded a lot of money but nonetheless you've taken their lives away that you have altered their lives irreparably but here's the problem that the people who have created the this issue, the people who who did the wrong in the first place, who broke the law, who committed crimes, uh, and I'm talking about real live go to jail type crimes, they're protected. And uh, there has never, ever in the history of the United States been a prosecutor who was convicted of actually uh, of 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 conspiring to bring about a wrongful uh, conviction. You had uh, a case in DuPage County uh, in the late 1990s, and uh, some prosecutors went after uh, a young fellow named Yolando Cruz and convicted him of murder, and then they found out later that, uh, boy, did these guys ever make stuff up? And they they clearly, um, you know, the Cruz was not a particularly... Uh, let's say, attractive person. He is somebody with a criminal record, but he clearly got framed 
but the jurors would not convict the uh, the prosecutors. They just wouldn't do it. The system protects them, and I know that uh, we're all shocked by that, but <laughs> there it is. Well, let me, again, if you don't mind, read another passage from your paper, and here you're going to use an analogy. You're going to say the same way that Akerlof uses the lemons example. Yeah. Uh, let's, let's try and imagine prosecutorial misconduct as if it were the selling of a bad car to an unwitting customer. It, it goes it, – it breaks down almost immediately. And here's what you write. When the customer complains and demands that the dealer give him a refund – that now, again, think of this as an analogy with, the, with prosecutors. The dealer refuses and turns to other employees of his business and all of them agree that it was a good car and that the buyer should accept the results and not carp about them and that the dealership followed all of the proper procedures for preparing the car for sale and that it had no known defects. Furthermore, in this particular example, the wronged buyer is prohibited from using the tort system and is told to check with government agencies that regulate used car sales. When the buyer turns to those agencies, after having discovered documented proof that the dealer knowingly lied about the car he sold, the employees of those organizations tell him that they are sorry, but that the dealer was just doing his job and that they will neither require the dealer to take back the lemon he sold uh, nor discipline him. It is near impossible to imagine such a scenario in the event a car dealer sells a lemon to a customer. However, this was the reality that John Thompson and thousands of other wrongly convicted people have experienced after prosecutors engaged in illegal and unethical conduct to place them behind bars. After having their freedom taken from them, sometimes for decades, they found that the judicial and law enforcement agencies so protect their employees that no meaningful redress is possible. Holy cow. Yeah. Not a lot of academic journal articles read like that, Bill. Where are you going to publish this one? <laughs> well, actually, I, ha I have sent it to uh, to a journal, yours and my favorite journal, of course, the Quarterly Journal of Austrian Economics, um, and I and I'll uh, I sent it to them, I believe, on Sunday, and so I'll just wait to see what happens. What you know, what they say, they'll put it through a blind uh, process and. And then we'll, you know, they, somebody may make, you know, ask for revisions or something like that. But I did want to get this published in a journal. And then what I'd like to do from there is actually work on, on, you know, running things from that. There are a number of, I, I'm part of it is with me. I need to get back into the academic portion of my work too, as opposed to just, you know, the popular press stuff. Uh, and so this is kind of almost a combination of the two, except what I'm doing here is she's using just straight economic analysis. In economics, we hold that incentives matter. You know, they matter a lot. And that when you look at structures of incentives, you can see how behavior is going to go. Uh, I don't care if you're a neoclassical econ economist, an Austrian economist or whatever, that you are, you know, that incentives matter. Now, this paper, unfortunately, until it gets published, there's no way people can read it. You don't have like a working paper version I can link people to? Well, that is the working paper. You can you can do it. The, the one problem is that uh, – uh, and it, I don't know. It just – it might uh, – it's one of these things that it could affect the so-called blind uh, grade Oh, process. yeah, that's true. Yeah, if people know. Yeah. yeah. How, All right. 
However, right. ch however, chances are people gonna, are going to know it's my paper anyway because they know I write about this kind of thing. Uh, right. Yeah, they're, they're going <laughs> to so, have to find – yeah, it would be like finding a jury that's never heard of O.J. Simpson. Good luck finding a reviewer for Bill Anderson's paper. <laughs> but Yeah, but, but yeah, uh, yeah, I'd like to do that. What I'm thinking about doing is doing a shortened version for the Mises page, but for now I'm just holding off because I want to make sure everything is done right uh, and also because – that you know, say you're an editor, uh, you're the editor of of the journal. I won't mention the editor's name, but that person could, you know, could maybe interpret it as I'm trying to put some pressure, you know, on them in order to be able to, do it, which you don't want to do. No, just, no, 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 absolutely, no, no. I'm not going to. If I'm responsible for this paper not getting published, uh, I'm going to have to go out and get drunk, and and who knows what I'll wind up doing. So we don't want that to happen. Hey, we'll, we'll get drunk together. Oh, but, I didn't see that. But but listen, what I will do is I will link people to two things yeah. um, if they want more Bill Anderson. First, your article archive at Mises.org, and secondly, your article archive at LouRockwell.com, which is I know where you published some of the Duke Lacrosse stuff at the very least. Yes. So we'll we'll link to both of these things, this being episode 1137. The the show notes page will be TomWoods.com slash 1137. That's where you can get your your fix of Bill Anderson articles. Well, <laughs> Bill, I, I appreciate you coming on. I'm, I love the paper, and I hope to see it published someday. Well, thanks, Tom, and and uh, keep doing the good work that you're doing, and thank you very much for having me as your guest. All right, everybody, that's going to do it for today. I have recorded a whole bunch of these in advance so I could go out of town, and I they are still coming out. You know, I go out of town, and the episodes just keep on rolling out of there. By the way, if you have not yet given it a shot, check out my sister podcast, Contra Krugman, which I co-host with Bob Murphy every week. We take a Paul Krugman New York Times column, and we tear it to shreds every week. If that ain't a winner of an idea for a podcast, I don't know what is. So check that out at ContraKrugman.com. And of course, check out The Contra Cruise. Bob and I are hosting The Contra Cruise for the third year in a row. It's going to be tremendous fun. Dave Smith will be there. Jeff Dice will be there. Tatiana Moroz, all three of these folks have been guests of The Tom Woods Show. And we're just going to have an absolute blast. And uh, you don't want to be just watching the video of all the highlights of the fun we had. You want to be there with us. So get the details on that at ContraCruise.com, and I'll see you tomorrow. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time.